to, well, I know now. The podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in various ways. I've chatted to people living with dementia, those looking after them, to actors, poets, artists, musicians, filmmakers and best-selling authors. And every one of them has taught me something new. I'm Pippa Kelly. My mum, Kay, lived with vascular dementia for her last decade. At the time, my family and I knew virtually nothing about the condition. We were worried, frightened, overwhelmed, and possibly in denial about what might be wrong with mum. And sadly, that's an all too common scenario. Now though, through my campaigning, I know so much more about this cruel set of diseases. I know now that it is possible to live a decent, if changed life with dementia. I know it's down to all of us to help those with the condition live better, more fulfilled lives. And I know that it's often the smallest things that make the most difference. The poet Sylvia Plath wrote, well, I know now a little more about how much a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person. And dementia teaches you this too. My guest today is an American who has worked for over 25 years on his country's dementia policies. A member of both the Virginia State Bar and the American Bar Association, he was a director of the Alzheimer's Association focusing on state and local policy in Virginia, Maryland and the District of Columbia for 16 years before moving to head up the Washington DC-based LEAD coalition in 2012. LEAD, or L-E-A-D, stands for Leaders Engaged on Alzheimer's Disease. LEAD is a national coalition of over 200 member and allied organisations, from charities, pharmaceutical companies, neurological societies, academic and research institutes, healthcare and home care providers, all of whom work to raise awareness of dementia and accelerate progress in three fields. The first, care and support. The second, detection and diagnosis. And the third, research into prevention, treatment, and cure. And my guest is Ian Creamer, Leeds Executive Director for the past 10 years. Ian sees his biggest achievement in that time as mostly, his qualification, unifying the community of dementia advocates, which was very fractured when he joined the coalition. Now, he says, though they don't agree on everything, the community agrees and collaborates on most, and importantly, it has productive and open lines of communication, even when there are disagreements. This strength in unity has brought some great results, such as a whopping 700% increase in dementia research funding at America's Medical Research Agency. And what Ian describes as a substantial expansion of the public health approach to dementia, which I'd like to talk to him about when we get going. I'd also like to explore with him the similarities and possible differences that exist between our two countries in the way we view and treat those with dementia and their families and carers. And I'd also like to discuss the extent to which stigma still lingers over the condition in America as it does here, and whether the level of awareness and knowledge of dementia has increased in the US. And if we have time after all that, I'd like to chat a bit about the importance of the language used in descriptions and discussions of dementia. Ian tells me that for as long as he can remember, he's lived his life by two maxims. Tikkun olam, which roughly translated from the Hebrew means to repair the world, and Martin Luther King Jr's words, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice, which is something we all need to hear right now. Researching Ian prior to our podcast, I can see that he is true to his beliefs. As well as his national role at the LEAD Coalition, he holds over a dozen volunteer posts in health, dementia and care. He participates in several national steering committees, including a research summit on care and support for those with dementia and their carers. And he's a member of the Executive Committee for Dementia Friendly America. In an interview last year, he explained that while the LEAD Coalition focuses on US federal policy, he doesn't like silos and is keen for the coalition to collaborate with all. Everyone sees the movement from their perspective, he said. We want to lift all boats. For me, Ian told me, working with and for people who have dementia is just one way I can contribute towards repairing the world and helping to accelerate the bending of the moral arc 
towards justice. So Ian Creamer, a very warm welcome indeed to Well, I know now. Pippa, thank you so much. I'm humbled by that remarkably generous introduction. And maybe, maybe we're done with the podcast. Maybe we've said everything there is to be said. I don't think so. You're not getting off the hook that lightly. <laughs> it's, a, it's a delight to be with you, my friend. Oh, okay. Thank you. What I'd like to do first, though, Ian, is turn the focus on you, if I may, to discover how you've come to work in the field of dementia for over a quarter of a century. 26 years ago, when you graduated from the University of Michigan Law School, did you ever think that such a large chunk of your career would involve dementia? It's a, a wonderful question and, and forces a lot of reflection. I will confess, I had no idea that this would become my career. When I graduated, I knew that I wanted to return to doing policy work in the United States. That's what I had done for a few years before law school. It's where my passion has been since my earliest memories, affecting change at a macro level to support those that are living that change at a micro level, hmm. community by community, family by family, individual by individual. And, and I always thought my strengths were at that umbrella level. But I didn't know that it was going to be working on Alzheimer's and related forms of dementia. And I, I will confess that it was lucky chance. My wife saw a help wanted ad for the local chapter of the Alzheimer's Association and said, you care about that. You could probably learn more about the nitty gritty details of what needs to be done and you ought to apply. And my wife is far smarter and wiser than I am. So <laughs> I... I took her counsel readily. And I will tell you that when I was in my final interview for that first job in this field, and now I've had two, so I'm pretty lucky that it's only been two. The person interviewing me for the job, the executive director of that organization said, our job is to put ourselves out of work. Mm, mm. And that made me want to accept the job offer. And mm. it made me want to stay with that organization doing the work I was privileged and fortunate to be able to do mm. until someone came along and said, you can do this at a grander scale mm. and hopefully touch more organizations and through them, more people. Mm. And that was an invitation I couldn't refuse. And so again, I've been very fortunate for the last 10 years to be at the lead coalition. And I'm fortunate to have kept a lot of friends through the Alzheimer's Association network. And to this day, continue to refer hundreds of families every year to mm. the local chapters of that organization, because whatever I do, and whether people know I exist or not, they need to know about local services and supports that can help them and their loved ones get through another day. Mm, mm, mm. Two things there, actually. I mean, the first one is, why were you interested? Why did your wife say to you, you're interested? Why were you interested in Alzheimer's, dementia? So in part, it's a personal connection. I lost a grandparent on each side to the disease before I began working in this field. And in part, because I, as a policy matter, I had always been interested in elder justice issues and mm. in the US, what we call senior policy. Mm. And so before law school, for several years, I had worked from a consumer perspective on pension law and pension policy. And that's part of what motivated me to go to law school. And when I came out of law school, I thought, well, maybe I'll do something related to that. But this other opportunity presented itself and certainly wound up being the right fit. Mm -hmm. And in your decade at the helm of LEAD, as I said in the intro, you've overseen an astonishing increase, 700%. I did have to sort of do a double take on that in research funding. Now, how do you account for this other than your incredible skills, obviously? You know, what role did LEAD play in bringing about that incredible increase in research funding? Well, I will say, frankly, I think our role was the least important role. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is I can bring people together and encourage them to do what I think is the right thing. But all of them have to decide whether they agree with that and whether they're willing to put their organizational and individual shoulders to the wheel and make it happen. Mm. So I am an advocate to other advocates, mm. but all those other advocates, and I'll enumerate that at least in some detail in a moment, mm. all of them had to make a choice about whether this was 
not only meaningful against their organizational goals and priorities and whether they were willing to allocate the bandwidth, but whether they thought that this was the kind of goal that could be accomplished and, and therefore was worth the effort. So I'm going to start at the top of the pyramid, mm. who I think is most important in that change, and that's two members of Congress who chair the respective subcommittees in the House and Senate in the United States legislature that decide how much money will be spent from tax revenue toward research at the National Institutes of Health, our premier federal health agency. Mm. And it was those two members of Congress that had to say thumbs up or thumbs down on doing what those of us in the advocacy community and the scientific community were asking them to do. And they did it. And it was their choice. And they easily could have said no. In fact, mm. one of those members of Congress, the person who chairs the Senate subcommittee for all of the last six years, a year before he began driving these remarkable funding increases, he was essentially finding any microphone he could to say Congress should not be doing disease-specific funding. Wow. We should just give, I'm paraphrasing now, mm -mm. give a big pile of money to the Federal Science Agency, let them apply their expertise and figure it out. Mm. But within a year, he had changed his mind and began to be open to this kind of targeted funding. And it's partly because of the work done by his colleague in the U.S. House of Representatives, a longtime dear friend of his who has personal experience with Alzheimer's disease. Is that Senator Wicker? And, uh, no, no. Senator Wicker's been great as well. The, the senator I'm thinking of is Roy Blunt from Missouri, mm. who's mm. unfortunately retiring uh, at the end of this Congress. Mm. But his colleague from the state of Oklahoma, knew the disease intimately, understood the challenges in the field, and was able to say to his friend from Missouri on the Senate side, this is also an enormous fiscal and budgetary challenge for this country. If we don't accelerate the science, we're never going to dig our way out of this financial hole mm. that I also care about from a societal benefit mm. point of view. Mm. So a variety of organizations, including Us Against Alzheimer's, the Alzheimer's Association, and many, many others, did the on-the-ground advocacy to help empower those members of Congress right. that wanted to do the right thing to be able to do the right thing. That's interesting. So number one, it's human connections often that can really have quite a big uh, effect on these decisions, isn't it? Which is interesting. You know, it comes down to things as sort of nebulous almost as that. And the other thing that often governments, I think, do begin to make these big shifts, which take a long time to really implement. But when there are big financial implications, I think the same could said to be true over here when you realise it was costing us £23 billion a year, it was estimated several years ago now, the whole entirety of the cost of dementia on our UK economics. Suddenly, people start to sit up and think, we have to do something about this, not just in human terms, but in and societal terms and in financial terms. Sounds like it was very much the same sort of push over there. Yeah, and I, I will confess, just individually, it frustrates me enormously that we even have to make the economic and budgetary case. That's just the reality. We mm, have to sure. do it. It works. Yeah. So we do it. Yeah. I would much rather have the entire debate center around need mm, at a mm, at a social mm, level mm. and opportunity on a scientific level mm, and mm. embrace that hope rather than that fear. Mm, but mm. I'll confess that doesn't always work. So we go where the opportunities are to change minds and change actions among all the relevant decision makers. Let's broaden our discussion a little bit and compare the way in which our two nations sort of view dementia, because I think, you know, when I was doing some research and I thought this was very interesting, actually, both as a societal issue and also, you know, how our health systems treat it, which you started to talk about a bit. So let's look at the similarities and the differences, perhaps. Now, one thing I did find really interesting in what you told me was on, at the societal level. Let's consider stigma for a moment, which you said, correct me if I've got any of this wrong, but I think you were saying that you believe it may have increased, though awareness has also increased, because of lack of education on dementia, and when dementia is portrayed in TV and films over there, it's not done so well, you think that perhaps it's now being 
politicised. And you gave the example of using the hashtag dementia on Twitter and these sort of political attacks one would get. Can you just explain about that? Because I'm not sure, you know, whether that is happening over here. I mean, I think in, in soap operas and things over here, it's generally... They do quite a bit of research and they certainly seem to get the storylines around dementia pretty well, I think. But um, tell us about what's happening in the U.S. then with the stigma. Sure. And, and I'll say in terms of mass media and entertainment, my observations are anecdotal and personal. So right. I can't claim I have a body of research to document how each particular film, television show, etc. No, is but characterizing you take a, take a big interest in this, don't you, sir? Yeah. Yeah. Casually, what I see is a lot of good effort and not a lot of good outcomes. And, and part of that, I think, is the challenge of the format, that if you have a two-hour movie mm. about one central set of characters, it's not going to reflect the heterogeneity of the lived experience sure. of dementia, even within one disease state, never mind across disease states. But mm. I'll give you one example. There's a, a very popular American television show, sort of a nighttime soap mm. opera, if you will, called Grey's Anatomy. It's probably run for 12 or 15 years by now. I think on the whole, it's a well-received show. There was a lot of hype in the run-up to it premiering. And I had heard there was going to be a dementia storyline that the mother of the main character was supposed to have Alzheimer's. And the main character's mother, the main character is a hospital physician, and the main character's mother is supposed to have Alzheimer's. And mm. I watched the first few episodes mm. and was really rather upset about the portrayal because they had the mother, who was supposed to be in quite advanced dementia, living in a, in a nursing home, which is typically where people wind up in much more advanced stages mm, mm, of the mm, disease, yes. depending on how you stage things stage six or seven is more typical. Yes. And she was lucid and she was uh, fluent right. and she was funny and mm. all these things mm. that, frankly, I associate mm. with being either in a mild cognitive yeah. impairment stage or yeah. at worst, maybe a middle stage of dementia. Mm. And I thought, I don't like it that they are sending a message mm. that someone who is clearly not independent, but quite capable mm. intellectually has mm. been relegated to yeah. a nursing home, which is mm. frankly, in many cases in the United States, a dumping ground for low-income people whose frailty and complexity of medical need, dementia or otherwise, is such that families no longer can provide care in their own home. Mm. And so there was this disconnect. And I thought they're taking a dramatic liberty here, which mm. I understand as a fictional account, but it does a disservice to educating the broad American public about what early, mid and late stage dementia really looks like and what your options are. Mm. There's always that sort of tension, I think, because I've written quite a lot about the role of the media in the portrayal of dementia. And I suppose they would come back to you and say, but this is fiction and it's not our role to educate. But at the same time, I think there is a responsibility and what I call the soft power of culture is a very strong power because I think people do take on board the messages much more when they are given softly through these ways rather than being sort of, as I call it, hit over the head by facts, which people don't tend to take in so well. But they do take in stories. It's to prove that the emotions and stories people remember and they resonate. And you mentioned there as well, when you talked about the way that it's funded over there, obviously, I think we have the same sorts of confusions with our funding, but you, obviously, your healthcare and social care is funded in a very different way from us over here. We famously have our free at the point of delivery national health service, but then we have our social care. And that is not free at the point of delivery. That is means tested. And it tends to be what people with dementia will use, because the way dementia affects you, you tend to want sort of care from carers rather than needing extreme acute medical attention. And this is why we talk about the dementia tax. And, you know, you fall in the cracks, really. If you've got cancer, you, you'll have everything paid for. But if you have dementia, it can carry on for years and the families undertake massive financial burdens. And often over here, people just seem to think as I think I did, you know, when it happened to both my parents were very ill and you, you think social care might be picked up as well and then you suddenly realise actually it's not. <laughs> Until, as I think with you, you um, you draw down in your own 
funds and then when you reach a certain level the state will kick in can you just give us a very simple definition of the way your healthcare is funded re-dementia and how it impacts on those living with dementia and their families right so it, i think it bears great similarity slightly different labels put on things, but great similarity to what you're experiencing in the UK. We don't have free at the point of service, basic medical care in this country. But after that stage, and particularly as you describe the situation and the expectations around dementia, I think there are a lot of similarities. Our public insurance system will not cover dementia care until you get to a point where you are as a family near poverty in terms of your savings. So you have to do what's called spend down. Yeah. So if you start with even very middle class level assets, you have to spend through nearly all of that. Yeah. And get down to a point where you qualify for not Medicare, which is our social insurance for all Americans 65 years of age and older, but to its sister program called Medicaid, which is a low income designated insurance program, again, public pay. Hmm. And often, not always, care that you can get through Medicaid financed programs is substandard. Mm, and with mm, massive, mm. massive waiting lists. So even mm. if you have gone through this excruciating experience of spending down what you have tried to build up over the course of a working life in assets, even if you spent that down to qualify for Medicaid, in part because you've been spending so heavily on this many-year-long trajectory of home-based yeah, Alzheimer's absolutely. care with no public support. Yeah. When you get to that point, you might find, well, now I qualify, but now I go on a 36-month or longer wait list for services, mm. whether those are community-based services or whether those are residential care services like a nursing home. Mm. And in, in this country, and there may be a parallel in the UK, but forgive me, I'm, I'm not familiar with whether there is, we have a, a level of care commonly called assisted living. Mm. Mm. Assisted living is almost always private industry organized and owned. Not always. There are nonprofit assisted living facilities, but they're quite expensive at various increments. There are some very high-end, remarkably expensive institutions, and then there are some that arguably are more affordable, but not for average Americans for any length of time. So even a relatively low-cost assisted living facility, again, no public financing of this system, might be $6,000 or more per month for a semi-private room with no medication management for your loved one who lives there. People with dementia will need medication management if they're at a point where they can't live at home anymore. Mm. And with little or no assistance with what we in the States, and possibly it's called the same in the UK, we call activities of daily living. So things like dressing, feeding, mm. Mm. toileting, bathing, etc. So you're basically getting room and board for $6,000 a month and a little right. more even at the low end of so the cost. So you're not getting spectrum. your 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 help, your support in the domestic living activities for the 6k. Those are add-on charges. Wow, okay. Okay. Yeah. Please don't get me wrong. Maybe there are assisted living facilities that I'm not familiar with where it's only $4,000 a month for room and board. No, I did have a discussion on my podcast um, a while back with Roseanne Corcoran, who is a carer over in mm -hmm. America and um, has her own podcast too. So we did a bit of comparing of the systems. And I do remember saying, actually, it's come back to me now, that yes, I think that however high hours might be, and they're pretty expensive. They're very expensive. And mm. as you rightly say, they go on for a long time often because people with dementia live a long time and they need, you know, like my mum was in a care home, a nursing home for eight years. You know, you, you right. quickly go through whatever money you may have. In America, it did seem to be more, which seemed virtually impossible, really, but it is more, I think. We are a painfully capitalistic society here. I'll put it that way. Every dollar that can be squeezed out will be squeezed out. And I will say some facilities, both assisted living and nursing homes, do a remarkably good job. But it's not only that it's not free, it's that it is impoverishing, particularly over a length of time. So a family that is dealing with an acute 
disease, like say a cancer, where there can be a recovery. If you need to be in a nursing home for a few months or in assisted living for a few months, many, not all families can find a way to afford it, even if that means taking out loans and then having to work over years to repay them. But if you're looking at a chronic disease like Alzheimer's or another form of dementia, and it's even more complicated with other forms of dementia that are less understood and where the industry of long-term residential care doesn't really cater to, say, frontotemporal dementia, Lewy body dementia, mm. et cetera. If you're looking at a multi-year trajectory, very, very few American families can afford that without either going into massive debt, if they can find someone who will loan them the money, mm. or spending down to this Medicaid level. And assisted living facilities, particularly the mid-range and high-end ones, will not take Medicaid payment at all. It's private pay or nothing. Really? Okay. So, so you don't even have the option of that supplemental financing from this public health care system that, as a family, your working loved ones have paid into for their whole lives. Mm. You, you can't even tap into that in a meaningful way for most assisted living in this country. There are, again, very, very limited exceptions to that, but that's kind of mm. par for the course. I'll just add one more thing that adds insult to injury in the way our Medicaid system works. Not only do you have to spend down to this near exhaustion of your personal assets before you are eligible for Medicaid, but then Medicaid instituted a number of years ago something they call the five-year look back. So you have to document how you spent down over the preceding five years. It's very hard for most families to even keep those records, sure. never mind present them in a way that will convince the Medicaid agency that it was done appropriately. So if, for example, the parents, before they knew dementia was even an issue for, mm, for mm. one of them, distributed some of their assets to their adult children to say, help them put yes. a down payment yes. on a house or a car, the Medicaid agency might look at that and say, well, you were trying to siphon off your assets to get to Medicaid eligibility faster. We don't accept that that was a legitimate gift to your adult children. Gosh, so it's very stacked against the individuals with dementia, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. And, and I chalk that up in part to stigma and to us having raised awareness about dementia, but not true understanding. Yes, we do have all sorts of anomalies that seem very cruel that happen over here in the same way. And I often think it's quite similar to the stigma and the prejudices that you see financially against people with mental health illnesses. It's almost like it's invisible and, and it doesn't sort of qualify for so many things. Um, do you find over there then that people have to sell their homes to pay for their care so they even might sell up their home before they really need to go into care or, you know, thinking about releasing capital really to do that? D does that happen over there? And if so, what do people think about that? It does happen. We have just a, another example of that. And the law is beginning to change, but it hasn't fully worked yet. We have a lot of couples that get divorced so that this spend down provision could be satisfied more easily and so that you could protect assets for the spouse who doesn't have this chronic medical condition, whether it's Alzheimer's or, or something else. Right. There are laws on the books that are supposed to protect the other spouse against what we call in this country spousal impoverishment. They aren't very generous in the allowance for what can be saved back for that spouse who doesn't need residential care. And that change in the law is not well understood or widely understood. And so you still have a number of very loving, very committed couples who get divorced on paper so that they can meet the eligibility criteria from a financial wow. perspective. And that's just a trauma that these families don't need, even if it doesn't change anything except mm. their legal status mm. as a unit. Mm. Still, it's a, it's a dystopian world, isn't it, when you have to get divorced? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing that, of course, you have to make matters even more complicated is a lot of it is state by state, isn't it, rather than national, which must be hugely confusing. I mean, we do get that a bit with our different health authorities and funding that you would have to reapply if somebody moves. But I think it's causes more of a headache over there. Yeah. And also, this is not at all unique to the United States. Often, 
when someone has dementia of one sort or another and is still living in a community setting, not in a residential facility, if they have multiple adult children, Mm. they wind up at some point in the disease getting shuttled between the homes of the adult children for parts of the year. Mm. If those adult children are in different states, then the rules are going to be different in terms of community-based services and eligibility. And do you have to redo all the paperwork when you Mm. spend part of the year in Florida, part of the year in Connecticut, and part of the year in Colorado? Mm. Three very different systems. And that's where you get to the medical record sharing issue, because there are going to be three different private healthcare systems with different health information technology databases Mm. in those three jurisdictions. But it can be three jurisdictions that are conjoined, if you will. So if you are someone with dementia who spent their adult lives in Washington, the District of Columbia, our nation's capital, and you have one adult child who is across the city line in the state of Maryland, and another adult child who is across the city line in the Virginia suburbs, and you shuttle between those three locations, you might drive no more than 10 miles in any direction and have three different healthcare systems, three different public insurance systems, three different sets of regulations governing the providers of community-based services, never mind residential care services. Well, so, so these are the problems that you face over there, Ian, and, and you're in a role where you're trying to combat this. How do you go about that? What are your techniques? Do you use a lot of sort of individual stories? Do you get advocates as we do here to, as I said earlier, always will tend to make people change their minds and bring people along with you when you really tell a story and have a a face to a name and a and a person and showing that this is actually affecting individuals human beings rather than it being numbers on a sheet how do you go about changing such enormous societal problems so you're right telling those individual stories matters a lot and one of the things that has become increasingly powerful in US-based, and I suspect uh, advocacy in other countries, including, of course, the UK, is having that first-person narrative. So people living with dementia telling their own stories. So somebody like Wendy Mitchell or Chris Roberts, who are magnificent in so many ways, being able to tell their story, but also carers, current and former care partners being able to tell their stories, that is influential. I will say I have a concern, though, about where we have seen that success with first-person narratives, Mm. Chris and and Wendy and people like them around the world are phenomenal advocates, Mm. but they are not representative of Mm. what most people, even with young onset and early-stage dementia, are dealing with. So we take the advocates we have. They are a blessing. We are grateful for them, and we need more. But we also need a way to have more representative voices from that enormous heterogeneous body Mm. of 55 to 60 million people living with dementia. And it's only when all of them have more ways to tell their stories that I think we will really fundamentally change both societal and government attitudes and actions. Part of that will have to wait for the science to advance because it is obviously extraordinarily difficult for someone with more typical progression of Alzheimer's disease or CJD or LBD Mm, or mm, any of the mm, other mm. disorders to tell their story when they are, say, 8, 10, 15 years into a more typical progression of the disease. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we we need the science to advance to slow down that progression, change the symptom expression, and that'll change the story too, but it'll still be a very compelling story. And God forbid that Wendy or Chris or other people that you and I know and respect and appreciate, God forbid that they advance significantly further in their symptoms. But if they do in some domains of their symptoms, but there are medications and non-medication, non-pharmaceutical interventions that can slow the progression of other symptoms that they otherwise might have experienced, if they can then tell their story and say, yes, I have deficits in this domain, but I don't have the anticipated losses in this other domain because of 
the pharmacological and non-pharmacological science that's been done. Mm. Let's do more of that science. That'll be incredibly powerful. Mm. That you talk will, about I think, the change attitudes. Of sciences, don't you? You don't see it just as a sort of medical science. No, not at all. At least at a policymaker level, most mm. of the attention, and therefore, of course, most of the resource, most of the funding, goes toward conventional biomedical science. That is in part because that has some very influential champions, both inside and outside the scientific community. And that's not wrong and that's not bad. I'm grateful for it. It is what will bend the curve of these mm. diseases mm. probably in, a, in the most dramatic way over mm. time. But there are so many other domains of science, including the things that will change the trajectory of the disease that are not medication-based. They are things like social determinants of health and lifestyle interventions, but it's also the quality of life interventions, which is not limited to care and support. But again, that's sort of the most obvious couple of subdomains within quality of life. So if you think about things like music therapy mm, mm. or art, art therapy more broadly, mm. if you think about dementia-friendly communities, I mean, mm. dementia-friendly communities are a wonderful, wonderful thing. But we need science, social science, to back up what elements make dementia-friendly community efforts successful or just look really good. They're beautiful window dressing, but they don't actually change outcomes. We need to measure. We need to study and measure. And then we need to take those learnings and replicate and scale them. And I'll, I'll give you one quick example from a completely different domain. Building schools and providing bicycles and school uniforms for developing countries does benefit education, not nearly as much and not nearly as inexpensively as clean water. So you should do both things, but if you've got a limited number of dollars, you're much better off in terms of outcomes if you provide clean drinking water for developing countries than if you build a lot of schools and provide uniforms and bicycles, because no one can put on the, the uniform, get on the bike, and ride to the school if they've got dysentery or worms because they don't have clean drinking water. Same thing in dementia-friendly communities. Absolutely. And so on that um, very subject, I mean, Wendy speaks very powerfully about this, because are you using in America the people, we call them the experts by experience, and of course the experts by experience are the people with dementia themselves. If they are in a position like Wendy and Chris to be able to be very articulate about this still, she says, you know, she really wants to be in on the design of a building from the beginning. Because often she said, radical enough planners will say, oh, you know, what do you think now? And they will involve a, a steering group of people with dementia or something. But Wendy says, often you've come in too late because then they've got to sort of undo it all and unpick it because actually she can walk straight in and this bunch of people with dementia can walk straight in and say, well, actually, that black thing on the floor is looking just like an, a ravine to us. And those colours are not great and this, that and the other. And they were so obvious to the experts, i.e. the people with dementia, but actually they've spent a lot of money and wasted a lot of money just by not asking the right people, which I think is sort of what you're saying, because we do need to make sure that what we spend the money on and the expertise on is actually going to make the difference to the people we're trying to make the difference for. Right. So I think the most important experts are people with lived experience. And that's both people with a particular medical condition, dementia or otherwise. And it's also people in their care yeah. and personal ecosystems yeah. who ha have the ability to observe some of these experiences and sometimes convey them, particularly as dementia advances, maybe they have more ability to convey those impressions, those preferences on behalf of, not in substitute for, but in, on behalf of their loved one who may be losing some language skills or some insight mm. as disease progresses, certainly less so at the outset for most of these conditions. Mm. That said, they're not the only experts, mm. but mm. I think it is critically important for all the relevant experts to be at the table at the point of ideation and as you rightly note, not the point of implementation. Mm. So yeah. whether that's design of, of a living space, whether it is development of a medical intervention or technology, mm. whether it is redesign of public spaces and services. So, you know, law enforcement is a big issue here in the yeah. United States and no doubt elsewhere, where most 
public safety personnel, unless they have personal experience, don't know a lot about Alzheimer's disease, never mind the other causes of dementia that might express very differently in terms of interactions with law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Training public safety personnel, yes, law enforcement, but also fire and rescue yes. and other emergency services, critically important, but important to not just train them about Alzheimer's disease. Yes, absolutely. To, to all dementias. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely, because people don't realize that it affects all sorts of things. It's not just a memory thing. It can affect uh, sight, right. vision, sensory perceptions. So how's it going over in the US? Because over here now, that is happening more, long way to go. But our retail, our shops and our uh, public services, such as police, fire brigade, they are being trained and being made more dementia aware. There's training, you know, is that happening in the States? Uh, in a very fragmented way. So there are a number of dementia-friendly communities springing up around the United States beginning in about 2015, but I think we are nowhere near as far along as the UK is. Mm. And, and I understand the UK has a long way to go. I don't mean to suggest it's an ideal finished project in the UK, but I think we're farther behind in the US. Mm. In addition to the organized dementia-friendly America effort, which is very much a community-level Mm. effort. You also have advocacy efforts, groups like where I used to work at local chapters of the mm. Alzheimer's Association. Mm. The very first piece of legislation I worked on 25, almost 26 years ago, was to make dementia-specific training available to all law enforcement officers across the Commonwealth of Virginia. It's not to say they all took advantage of that training, though the vast majority eventually did. It's quite but a long just time to make ago, it though, available. That, that is quite a long yeah. time ago. Long time ago, I'm I'm a lot grayer now than I was then. Um, yeah, but I'm just thinking in terms of you know where you were at then, and um, is it because it's because of this, this state, this fractured sort of state? Why do you think you're still behind then, compared to us, perhaps? I do think that's part of it. So there are states that are 25 years later now just getting around yeah. to in a serious way training their public safety officers, and mm. and there are things where. The state I worked in, Virginia, is probably still quite far behind certain other states. Mm. It is very fragmented, but it's also because I think we just have a more challenging advocacy environment than some other health conditions, where it is yeah. harder for us to have self-advocates. So the stories tend to be second or third hand. Mm. And I'm not in any way trying to diminish the challenges that face other health advocacy. No, sure. It's always a bit of videos, isn't it, to start? comparing right. diseases and conditions. But yes, I know what you mean, though. And that's not to say the cancer community, as an example, has everything it wants out of every state no, sure. government no. or every local a government. Absolutely. No, no, no. They've been at this longer, yeah. and they're better organized, and they have more self-advocates, and they get to tell survivor stories, which we would love to be able to tell, and one day we will be able to tell. Two big things there. One is they've been at it longer, as you say. Because over here, there was this big sort of shift and, you know, we used to sort of whisper about the big C. Right, um, here too. But then, you know, that happened, I think, primarily, as you rightly say, because drugs came along that actually could prevent certain cancers and could cure certain cancers. And also, we now talk about the different cancers. You know, you rarely say, oh, you know, well, you do still say so-and-so's got cancer, but then the next question is quickly followed up by you know, is it breast cancer and prostate cancer? Because, you know, it's not my subject. So I don't want to get any of this wrong, but I, I think they're sort of on the scale of things. Hopefully there might be more of a better chance with those than, say, other cancers. You know, you, you're much more aware about the very dangerous ones and then the ones that really have, you know, huge strides we made in breast cancer. But, of course, yes, we don't have that in dementia. I think that's one big reason why you know there's still the stigma around dementia because I think people really fear it because there's no cure and because they fear it they don't talk about it and because they don't talk about it there's still a lack of understanding around it whereas with cancer it all opened up because some of the fear went and everybody talked about it more and knowledge became more distributed so that that was one thing and uh and the other thing is that it was a while ago now I had said to me so often dementia is where cancer was about 20, 30 years ago, that I looked into that. And actually, it was a sort of sad piece I wrote because this in itself was about nine years ago that I wrote it, I think. But it was more like 50, 60 years ago. 
Um, it's a long time ago that we made these advances in cancer, both societally and medically. So, yeah, but I think we can learn a lot from the way the advocates did it and also from the disability rights campaigners who said nothing about us without us. And now, you know, you don't go anywhere in the UK. Public buildings have to be built with a ramp for a wheelchair. And it would be really odd. You'd think, oh, you know, that's not accessible. You just think, well, it's doesn't happen anymore and we need to get to a point where as you rightly said you know the quality of life of people with dementia can be so hugely advanced and enhanced through these measures within society through properly dementia friendly communities you know where you've got things like dementia friendly tills we now have over here i don't know if you have those in supermarkets now where mm -hmm. you can go and spend a bit more time working out your change or not having to use your change or, you know, there are illustrations at the till and there might be somebody to help you and banks are trained. And so I think you're right. There are different ways as well as the medication, aren't there? You give some prime examples of how communities can truly be dementia friendly. A lot of the time, if something works well for people with dementia, it generally works well for all of us. Um, yes. And I, again, did a piece sort of burrowing into what it actually meant to be dementia friendly, because it can be a bit of a label that's sort of just, uh, you know, make you feel better, but really not lots right. changing. Um, it's all a bit tokenistic. But if you do get a properly dementia friendly place, community environment, then in a way, being dementia friendly is just being friendly. It's just right. being kind. It's just having a bit more time and a, and a bit more patience and a bit more tolerance and, a, and generally being a bit more sort of humane about things, which is a great thing for all of us to do. You know, so um, what not to like, really? Right. Well, and, and I, I take your point about things like lines in the grocery store, having the till set up. I will say those are wonderful innovations, but I want every till to be set up so that a person living with dementia or any other challenge doesn't have to find the right till. Yeah. And yeah. so that they aren't sort of labeled for being in that line rather than another line. Of course. Uh, so that's not a criticism of your point, is to say that what you give as an example, which I wholeheartedly endorse, is a first incremental step toward where we need to be. Absolutely. But I think you just have to be realistic, don't you, and think yes. that it is a first step and it's not the end result. But uh, I take heart from the fact, because I'm generally quite a positive person, that, you know, things are moving slowly in the right direction. And perhaps, you know, that's what we just have to keep hold of, really. I know you like to highlight what people can do, what is working, the positives, and, you know, rather than what they can't, without being at all dismissive of anything. So I suppose that's all we can do at the moment anyway, and just hope that uh, step by step, individual by individual, we make a change. I think you're right. And sometimes those individuals, and, and let's just take the example of retail, sometimes those individuals are an individual server in a restaurant, mm. being more patient, helping someone with the mm. menu, helping them with paying the bill, finding the right amount of the right, you know, mm. pick the right credit card mm. <laughs> rather than the library card, the right amount of sure. cash, et cetera, and not drawing a lot of excessive attention to it. But sometimes... And this goes back to my orientation at the macro rather than the micro. Mm. I'm not sure I want to hold the individual server accountable for whether service is good or bad. I want to take responsibility up at least one level to that restaurant or that restaurant chain or the international conglomerate that owns that and 500 other restaurant chains globally. If the institution decides that all of their retail outlets are going to be, we'll use this phrase again, dementia friendly. Mm. And they work with those who have expertise in what it means to be dementia friendly, including most especially people with firsthand lived experience and their care partners. If they inform their design and their implementation and their redesign and their re-implementation mm. throughout their network of retail institutions, then that server is much more likely to not only act in the way we want them to, but to be supported in acting that way. Yes, no, I absolutely get your point. Mm, it's an ethos. There's an ethos that would run through a company. 
Right. And whether, to be blunt, whether it's for the right motives or the wrong motives is a secondary concern for me. I want them to do the right thing, yeah. whether they're doing the right thing for the right reason or the wrong reason. Mm. So if, if it's the bottom line and if it's a marketing campaign around their social responsibility as a company mm. that gets them to do the right thing, mm. fine. So I can live with that. Mm. I can live with that. I don't mind if Coca-Cola or McDonald's makes a profit. I want them to do right by people living with dementia and mental health issues and so many other issues. Mm. And I don't want us to be in a situation where it is server by server in a restaurant who bears the brunt of the responsibility, because if they do the right thing, they might get in trouble with their manager. But if the manager is told by corporate headquarters to make sure all the servers do the right thing, I think we'll have better outcomes for the recipients of the service, but also the providers of the service. No, I take your point, and that's well said. As a as a as somebody who's worked on federal policy for a long time, I completely see where you're coming from. Yes, the language around dementia, I think, is is an interesting subject for listeners that always provokes a lot of reaction. And one thing that you did mention to me when we were doing a few emails before, um, which is again quite a topic which can elicit different opinions over here is the use of the very word dementia and you said to me you know some people push back against the word dementia in the US and they prefer longer terms like neurocognitive impairment or atypical neurodegenerative disease quite apart from the fact that it's extremely difficult to say after a couple of drinks or even before a couple of drinks you can live with the word dementia because it's it's well, yeah, certainly than um, atypical neurodegenerative diseases. That's a really, I'm sure a lot of people would just look at you and say, what? Whereas at exactly. least dementia is a recognisable word. So, you know, tell us more about how that is played out in the US. Well, I think we have to meet people where they are mm. and then try to help them move to where we would like them to be. And just whether the term Alzheimer's and the term dementia need to be differentiated. And I think it depends on the context. When I go to Congress or when I encourage others to go to Congress to ask for more research funding, I mention the word dementia and I try to make clear the distinction between the suite of symptoms that we call dementia and mm. one particular disease mm. called Alzheimer's that can cause some of, many of, but not all of those symptoms. Mm. I try to highlight that. But I don't lead with it. The first paragraph of my letter to Congress asking for more research funding focuses on the word Alzheimer's because that's the word most of the members of Congress and their yeah. staff yeah. know no. and identify with mm. and have heard enough to know they need to do something about it or appear to be doing something so about it. So if it's it. going to cut through for you, then use it. Yeah. If mm. I if my first paragraph talked about atypical neurocognitive degeneration... It's not going to cut through, is it? <laughs> We would not be getting a 700% increase over the last six to seven years in research funding. We'd be lucky if we got that. a dollar. Mm. So meet them where they are, but mm. take opportunities to educate them about, I shouldn't call it the nuance, but the detail, particularly the members of Congress or other audiences that have more functional influence on outcomes. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. I go back to my point, really, that, that you can do all you can as members of the media, but it's quite difficult to change the whole machine. It's a big beast. It is. So it's about setting priorities and about drawing bright lines. And so it may be that certain organizations or other influencers feel they do or don't have the bandwidth to prioritize the issue of what language is acceptable or not. But I think that's how it has to be framed, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Mm. Mm. And, and so I will give you two very loaded examples of where no headline writer, at least in the United States, would ever use the following two words because we as a society led by advocacy organizations have made clear that it is unacceptable to use what used to be acceptable language. Mm -hmm. You would never, I think, in the United States, in a responsible media outlet, see a headline with the word retarded. Mm. And you would never see a headline by a responsible media outlet in the United States with the word Negro. Mm. Mm. Both were entirely accepted, not just by archaic, backward-looking states or institutions entirely accepted up until a point in this country and mm. that point did not change overnight and it did mm. not change uniformly mm. but in time it mm. changed uniformly mm. 
Mm, and point. and yeah, we can, mm. we can, if we are determined, if it's a high enough priority with enough bandwidth, shoulders against the wheel, we can convince editors and producers and others that certain words are not acceptable. And mm. so when you and I were trading a couple of emails, one of the words that we discussed was not dementia, but demented. That's right. I think, I think we could start by taking the word demented off the acceptable list. Mm. And later, we might be able to get to the point where victim, sufferer, et cetera, is taken off. But it will take sustained effort from a lot of influential voices and then eventually peer pressure within media institutions to say, we're not doing that anymore, and we'll find another way to make the headline economical or the paragraph word count economical. Mm. We're not going to take a shortcut of using the word demented. We're not doing it as an institution. No, that's a very good point. And um, I mean, over here, demented isn't really used. And just to be very open, because I always try and be honest, you know, and I've said this publicly before anyway, I think it was in 2006, so a long time ago, and it was the first piece I ever wrote about my mother for a national newspaper. And because at the time I didn't, it's my mother, I loved her. I mean, there was no way I was doing it to be offensive, but I did say she was demented just because that was the language you used then. And I would never use it now. So you're quite right, right Ian. It's very tricky to get away from the labels and the shorthand. Mm. And mm. most of it is not ill-intended and meant to be hurtful. But people having good intentions doesn't remove them from responsibility for the consequences of their good intentions having bad outcomes. You know, it's not the lead coalitions or my highest priority to get people to stop using the word victim. But when I have an opportunity with an audience that I think is prepared to hear it, an audience of one mm. or an audience mm. much larger, I take the opportunity, and you're, you're very generous in giving me that opportunity now. I don't think I need to change your mind. I don't think I need to change the minds of the vast majority of our listeners. But I think it's something where I want to encourage those of us who are already persuaded by the importance of the lexicon mm. to mm. not be afraid to call others out. And again, I will go back to this awful word, retarded, mm. which didn't used to be an awful word. Yeah. Those who are offended by it and those who suffer pain by the use of that word often now will call out strangers who they hear mm. using. Mm. And I think that's incredibly important, even though it's terrifying in the moment. And I will tell you it again from a different time and a different issue. One of the most striking memories I have from being a young adult, when I no longer lived at home with my parents, but shortly after, my mom told me about an experience where she was in a local retailer. And I don't remember the exact situation as it was described to me, but the clerk, in an offhanded way, made some reference to my mom attempting to, in quotes, Jew her down. And my mother and father left the store and they summoned up their nerve and they turned around and went back in the store and they didn't scream and they didn't yell and they didn't accuse. They had a conversation with that clerk mm, and explained mm. what that phrase meant and mm. why it was so hurtful mm, mm, and mm. why if this was a good person behind that store counter, she should never use that phrase again toward mm. anyone. Mm. That clerk mm. didn't know that my parents were Jewish, yeah. didn't care that my parents were Jewish, probably wasn't even trying to be hurtful. Yes, absolutely. I think that's one of the points, isn't it? But it was loathsome behavior. And yeah. my mother had to figure out in a moment whether she was going to confront it or ignore it yeah. for who knows yeah. how many times before she had been forced yeah. to ignore it. That time she didn't have to and yeah. she chose not to. And hopefully yeah. it made the world a better place in a small but lasting way. And, you know, this goes back to repair the world. Sometimes you repair the world one person at a time, face to face, and sometimes you do it at a macro level. No, absolutely. And it's all about knowledge, isn't it? And understanding and realizing. And so, as you say, the, the clerk probably didn't even realize. Right. I hope not. Oh, well, thank you. We've we've chatted for a long time, you know, Ian. I hope other people have found it uh, interesting. I found it absolutely fascinating. So thank you very much indeed. Oh, you're very kind, Pippa. Thank you. Well, I don't know about you, but I found my chat with Ian Creamer very interesting and really, really thought-provoking. 
It was a little different from my usual conversations, less personal, but just jam-packed full of dementia facts from across the pond. Ian gave a fabulous exposition of the US health and social care funding system. And if we thought ours was tortuous, I, for one, haven't heard of couples in the UK getting divorced to protect their assets, though maybe you have. The breadth and depth of Ian's knowledge are matched only by his long years of experience, so it was a treat to compare our two countries' perspectives on dementia with someone so eminently qualified to do so. His views on advocates, on stigma, awareness, dementia-friendly initiatives and the importance of language were all fascinating and pragmatic, while underpinned with his strong sense of justice and humanity. I can see how, with his thoughtful, intelligent approach, he's managed to achieve almost unbelievable increases in dementia research funding in the US. It's not often that I get to talk in such depth about American federal dementia policy with such an expert, so thank you very much indeed, Ian Creamer, for sharing your valuable insights with us all. Well I Know Now is taking a short break for Easter, and I'll be back with another episode and another fabulous guest on Wednesday the 20th of April. That's in two weeks' time. So meanwhile, have a wonderful, relaxing and hopefully sunny Easter. And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast and then together perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge and quash the myths surrounding dementia.